Our reading today is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23. This can be found on page 1182 of the Church Bibles. Philippians 4, verses 10 to 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learnt in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be the be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Brahma, thank you for reading for us. Uh, please do keep uh, sight there of Philippians 4 as we finish our series uh, in Philippians. And let me uh, just lead us again in prayer. Some words from Philippians chapter 1. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that our love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we might approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ and all to your glory and praise. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 220 billion dollars. Uh, 220 billion dollars. Any ideas what that uh, represents? Uh, not our gift aid contributions in the last financial year. Uh, it is an awful lot of money. I think some people are already guessing already. It is the best estimate people can make for how much the Football World Cup is costing Qatar. 220 billion dollars. It is quite clear money talks. We talk, don't we, of putting your money where your mouth is. 
And money shows what we care about, what's important to us. If you buy an England football shirt, it generally shows you're supporting England, especially given how expensive they are. And money shows who you're partnering with. It's been a big issue, hasn't it, out in Qatar. Businesses, companies normally so desperate to link arms with the host nation, now getting a little bit squeamish, uh, no longer quite so keen to be seen as partnering with people who could damage their brand. It's to this uh, topic of money Paul turns to towards the end of his letter. Now, money is not the main thing on Paul's mind. It takes him until the last section of his letter to mention it. And as we'll see in a bit, when he does talk about it, he's super clear. It's not like he's tapping up the Philippian church for funds. Paul is not just saying, show me the money. Religious organizations are, are often viewed as just being after our wallets, and often it's not far off the mark. But as far as fundraising appeals go, Paul's approach is certainly countercultural. Uh, basically, he's saying thank you. I don't know if you've realized Philippians is something of a thank you letter. But he unpacks his gratitude in such a way as to draw together many of the threads, many of the, the glorious, gracious truths we've been seeing throughout this letter. But it might not be immediately obvious to us, though. So just look down to verse 10 with me again, page 1182. And in verse 10, Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. That word concern, it's the mindset idea again. It's about thinking the right way. All along, Paul has wanted the Philippians to have one mind in Christ, to be following his mindset. And here is one of the key ways that way of thinking, that mindset is expressed. And we might be a little surprised Paul mentions giving. But if we can remember back to chapter 2 and Epaphroditus coming to see Paul, then we'll be aware he hasn't actually said thank you yet for the gift of money the Philippians have given him. And so now he expresses his gratitude and he models a truly Christian approach to money. And the first point in verses 10 to 13, you'll see it there on the outline, is copy Paul's complete contentment. Copy Paul's complete contentment. Verse 10 again, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Paul's saying how glad he is they've sent him money again. And just in case the Philippians think he's having a go at them for such a long gap in between gifts, Paul says, verse 10, he knows they've wanted to give, they just haven't been able to until now. And it causes Paul to rejoice in the Lord, exactly what he wants to see the Philippians doing. Perhaps uh, we've been in one of those situations or even received a letter from some charity where they thank you for donating, but actually what they're really doing is asking for more money. You've seen those. Uh, we've been able to house 30 abandoned donkeys because of your generous donation. Please, could you give us a little bit more this year? Paul's really keen, though, that that's not how he's coming across. And so he says, verse 11, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Even though Paul's in prison and he relies on people giving him money for food and clothing, he can say, look, I'm doing okay at the moment. And more than that, I've learned to be content in every situation. The idea of contentment is you've got everything you need. 
There's no lack, a satisfaction in your circumstances or position in life. So how can Paul be satisfied in any and every situation? Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's point isn't just he knows what it's like to be in need or in plenty, as if he's writing some kind of autobiography, a spin on a tale of two cities. It was the best of times and the worst of times. Now, did you notice Paul says he's, he's learnt how to live, how to cope, how to be godly in these circumstances, not just to put up with them. There's no British stiff upper lip as if Paul just kind of bottles it all up. No, Paul wasn't reluctantly poor or well off. He had learned how to live so that neither affected him badly. He's not given in to the arrogance of the wealthy or the spiritual arrogance that can come with poverty. Just the other day, I don't know if you saw that the, uh, the US lottery jackpot hit uh, just over $2 billion, uh, won by a single uh, ticket in California. I wonder how we would deal with winning the lottery? Where would our thoughts naturally go to? How would it impact our trust in Christ? What about if we lost everything? How then would we cope if all our possessions, even our home, was taken away from us? Paul can say he'd be okay with either extreme, wealth or want, poverty or plenty. And it's, it's not a kind of attitude he's just fallen into. He's not happened to him passively. He's learned how to face these extremes. And interestingly, it's in exposure to both that he's learned it. We often think, or at least I often think, we'll be content if we have just a little bit more. And when the mortgage is paid off, when the kids are through uni, and when I reach retirement. Or we think we'll just be content with a simpler life, a kind of minimalism. If I could just sell up and go and run a small holding in the country and just spend more time with friends and family, then I'd be happier. But actually, the secret of true contentment, complete contentment, isn't found in either. No, Paul lets us in on his not-so-secret secret in verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Here is the way he's learned contentment. He can face all these things through Jesus Christ who strengthens him. Many athletes can sometimes be spotted with Philippians 4.13 on the wristbands. You've seen them. But notice Paul doesn't say, I can win all sports matches through him who strengthens me. Uh, So is this a, a promise? God will help us to do whatever we put our minds to? God will strengthen us to raise the dead or walk on water? Well, the key, as ever, is context. The the all things must be determined by what Paul's just been saying. Paul can do all these things, facing plenty or being in need, because Christ is the one who strengthens him. So contentment here, Christian contentment, isn't self-sufficiency. Paul's talking about Christ's sufficiency, or as the Amplified Bible puts it, I am self-sufficient, in Christ's sufficiency. And actually, hasn't Paul been modelling this all the way along? Rejoice in the Lord. 
he's straining forward, pressing on towards the goal for the prize of the upwards call in Christ Jesus. He's confident Jesus will equip him for every situation and he knows, in fact, he's eagerly waiting for Jesus to come back to take us to our true home in heaven. So it's a bit like Paul's in a a Zorb ball, you know, one of those giant inflatable balls. And, uh, and, And it's like the ball is Christ, if that's not an irreverent thing to say. Anywhere Paul goes, he's in Christ. And so his circumstances don't define his outlook, but Jesus does. His possessions don't dictate his happiness, but Jesus does. And this is the example of Philippians to copy. Can we spot how this comes straight after verse 9? What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So I wonder how comfortable would you be, would I be, with saying verses 12 and 13? Would we really be okay if we lost it all? If we were in need, in want and hungry? Would we know that if we have Jesus, we have everything we need? And as those who are well-fed and have plenty, how are we doing at being content in that? It's not that we're content with what we've got, Otherwise, if we lose it, we lose our contentment. We must be content, satisfied in Christ. Uh, Since it's contentment in every situation, it'll mean finding contentment in Christ, not just in our financial state, but I take it it's finding contentment in Christ, whether we're married or single, uh, longing for children or exasperated with them, in full or failing health, even facing death, we can be content because to live is Christ. And to die is gain. It is to depart and be with him better by far. We can never lose our contentment in Christ. Reminds me of the beginning of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. There is nothing I lack. Uh, So contentment, true Christian contentment, isn't the same as being emotionless, like a, a stoic, not engaging, not responding to life around them. May Paul feels deeply, passionately. He cares, doesn't he, about Epaphroditus' health and well-being in chapter 3. But ultimately, we find our satisfaction not in events and circumstances, not in people or things or stuff, but in Jesus. Now, the Christian never says satisfied, but rather he satisfies. I reckon all of us, if you're anything like me, could do with learning contentment. How many of us can say we're not longing for more or to be in a different situation? Contentment is only found in Jesus. No amount of money, no freedom from distractions, no different circumstances will give us complete contentment. Only Jesus. So let us resolve to look to him whatever our circumstances and trust his strength is sufficient for every situation. Copy Paul's complete contentment. Paul has learned to be content. And so, although he's not asking for a handout, he still wants the Philippians to know that giving to the gospel is a brilliant thing to do. And it brings us to our second big idea, verses 14 to 19. It's to persist in partnering in gospel giving. Although he doesn't need the Philippians' money, he wants them to keep giving to gospel work. Perhaps you notice Paul doesn't directly thank the Philippians in verse 10. He rejoices in the Lord. 
It's a good picture, isn't it, of expressing gratitude because ultimately it's all down to Jesus. But Paul still wants to express his appreciation to the Philippians. And so he says, verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And what's really interesting is, again, it's the picture of partnership. That's what's meant by that word share. It's the partnering word again. So Paul underlines gospel giving is a privilege uh, for at least five reasons here. You'll see them again on the outline. Firstly, he says it's partnership. Verse 14, yet it was kind of you to, to share or partner in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now, partnering has been a a massive theme in this letter, partnering in the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Chapter 1, verse 7. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers, partners with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. 2 verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, it's the same similar word again, in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. All right, chapter 3 verse 10, that I may know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection and may share, may partner in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And then twice, in these verses in chapter 4. And perhaps we're surprised that partnership here is expressed in financial giving. But actually it shouldn't really surprise us that much when we think about how life works. One of my brothers owns his own company and to get it up and running he and a friend had to put in not just their ideas and time and hard work but also capital. They had to put in their money. A partnership isn't just working together but putting in your savings to set up the company. And the Philippians have partnered with Paul by supporting him financially. Paul's point in verses 15 and 16 is they partnered with him from the off. They were the only ones to help him in the beginning and they they kept on going. He's really grateful to them. No sooner did Paul and Silas arrive in Philippi than they're promptly beaten, arrested and imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Uh, But not before some of the locals are converted and a church is born. But then they have to dash, and Paul goes through Amphipolis and Apollonia before arriving at Thessalonica, and another church is born. And what's amazing is that even by this stage, the Christians in Philippi have begun to send Paul money. They're finding out ways they can support him in gospel ministry. They can see the need, they want the gospel to advance, and so they put their money where their heart is might be a helpful corrective to to some of us. We don't give to church because we're giving to a charity, and we're giving because we're partners. Gospel ministry is like the the family business, if you like. So again, it's not like we're paying for a service like you pay for a travel agent or a taxi driver. It's not like we're giving to a welfare organisation. It's not like paying your subs at a sports team or local club. Uh, Giving to church and to gospel workers is much more like investing in the family business. And that's the the second reason Paul outlines for us. Gospel giving is partnership. And secondly, it's an investment. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. 
It is worth it. I think once we get our head around what Paul's actually saying in verse 17, it is staggering. Paul's not so concerned with the gift as he is to the benefit it is to the Philippians. Our natural inclination is to think the recipient is the one who's better off. Or maybe at Christmas we might say to the children, it's better to give than to receive, but really we only think it's good because it's polite or a nice way to behave. Paul says, no, giving to the gospel really is actually genuinely good for you, both now and for eternity. He's interested in the fruit that increases to their credit. It's the idea of compound interest. And the question I ask myself is, what is credited to their account? Is it growing in a a godly lifestyle? As we give, we become more like Jesus. Is it the fruit of seeing more people come to know Jesus through our financial support of the gospel? Is it a, a reward from God on that final day when we stand face to face with Jesus? Or could it be all three? And I think in this case, Paul does have quite a, a wide angle. I think we can have our cake and eat it, which I do like to do, and, and go for all three. All three are certainly true. And doesn't it give us such a rich view of investing in the gospel? It is to our benefit and others, both now and for eternity. Some of you I know deal in shares and equities in bonds and property and the futures exchange and so on, and it is all a complete mystery to me. But what I can say with utter certainty is there is one investment which trumps them all. As we give to gospel work, we will come to know the Lord Jesus more, sharing in his sufferings and his resurrection power. We will become more like him. We will help more people hear about Jesus and come to know him. And on that final day, we will receive our master's commendation. It is a sound investment. And then thirdly, it's a sacrifice. Verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. In verse 14, Paul is grateful they've partnered with him uh, in his troubles. And it suggests uh, they've somehow suffered with him, like him. And now that's made explicit. Not only is their gift a joy to Paul, it's of immense value in the sight of God. This fragrant offering, it's an image taken from the temple, it's a thanksgiving sacrifice, not a way of racking up God points as if anyone could get into heaven that way. It was a means by which someone already in God's favour, already part of his people, could say thank you. An offering flowing out of a grateful heart to God for who he is and all that he's done for us. And the first reference to this pleasing aroma in the Bible is given by Noah after he's been rescued through the flood. And isn't that just the same in this letter? We've already had the sacrifice in chapter two as Jesus goes all the way to the cross in our place. He does what we could never do so we might be forgiven. So we don't need to face God's just judgment for our rebellion against him. Wonderfully, we can know Jesus now because of his sacrifice. And it means wonderfully we have the opportunity to express gratitude to God, to give a sacrifice. But not so much Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, but rather Paul is thinking more of a a direct debit or standing order form if he would have known of those things. But we mustn't forget, a sacrifice is giving something at cost to yourself. 
in the Old Testament, you didn't just offer up the worst sheep in your flock to God, but the best one. No mouldy wheat, but the finest. Could that be said of us? Are we so grateful to God for all he's done for us, given to us, for who he is, that we long to give a sacrifice, even a costly sacrifice to him? The norm in the Bible is giving till it impacts our lifestyle, giving till it hurts. That's a sign of conversion. The Philippian jailer decides not to get that new car, but to go for a second-hand one. Lydia, the, the dealer in purple cloth, leaves the dress she wants but doesn't need, sitting in the online basket. Uh, the slave girl chooses a cheaper holiday. All say they can give to Paul. And perhaps they're unaware that in supporting Paul, they're offering a sacrifice pleasing to God. But Paul makes clear that's exactly what it is. In seeking to support the preaching of the gospel, they are making an acceptable sacrifice. It is pleasing to God. If you've come along this morning and you're not yet a Christian, please notice these are words for people already following Jesus. This gospel partnership through giving to the gospel only comes after people have put their trust in him, after they've received forgiveness and received salvation through Jesus' death. So please don't mishear me as saying you should give. We can only give after we've received. and We can never outgive God. The language of sacrifice is only in response to the sacrifice of Jesus already made for us on the cross. I do go back and, and read through chapter two again. Now, the right response to these words here is to, to come to Jesus for free pardon, to be brought into his family through the cross. And then and only then can we offer anything to God and all in gratitude. And we do it knowing it is safe. That's the fourth reason, verse 19, it is safe. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We can never outgive God. Even if we're giving sacrificially, God can and will meet our needs. He is no one's debtor. Now, it's not a, a promise of immediate financial remuneration as if God somehow owes the Philippians. It's not, not that mechanistic. It is a, a promise of assurance to those already giving sacrificially, not a blank check to all believers. And just notice it's a far bigger promise than mere finances. God will supply every need of yours. Sometimes we might need to be humbled by God more than we need a large bank account. We can trust God to give us everything we need for life and godliness. Of course, remembering that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Isn't it just a wonderful encouragement to the many folk here at St. John's who are already giving generously, sacrificially, partnering in the gospel? And just as an aside, do I see myself and my finances as supplying my own needs or God meeting my every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And then finally, giving to the gospel is brilliant because it is to God's glory. Verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Giving sacrificially doesn't ultimately reflect well on us, but on God. And we, we forego a new refurb or we increase our direct debit to church. We can't really pat ourselves on the back. Just as all the thanks for the Philippians goes to God, so does all the glory. And that is wonderful news. 
We would be intolerable if it was all about making us look better. It would also be going against everything we've already seen in Philippians. Augustine, one of the church fathers, said, God crowns not our merits, but his own gifts. God is the gift. Everything we have comes from him. So, of course, it's right. All the glory goes to him. And so it turns out that all of this is in part an answer to Paul's prayer. Back in chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, maybe we spotted some of the similar language, abounding, filling, fruit, glory, and so on. As we pray that prayer, that our love would abound more and more in chapter 1, it will be answered in part as we give to the gospel. It flows from a growing love for Jesus and his people. So I guess there's a, a simple question for us. If we are a Christian, are we giving to the work of the gospel? There, there are so many good things to give to, but our priority must be giving to gospel proclamation. I think one of the main ways is giving to the work of the local church, but also we get to give uh, to other gospel workers. Nowhere does Paul suggest any amounts. He just assumes it'll be sacrificial. Uh, the Old Testament commands 10%, and I reckon that's a good starting point for most people. Uh, but for many of us, 10% wouldn't really be sacrificial. We might not notice it in our day-to-day -day lives. Uh, wonderfully, in God's kindness, many already give joyfully, sacrificially to the work here and in other places. And doesn't this remind us of the, the many compelling reasons to give, to partner in the gospel. But it's not as if we can just set up the standing order and forget about it. And gospel giving is done in the context of deep, warm, loving relationships. And in verses 21 to 23, we see all of this is done with affection and by grace. If verses 10 to 13 are the, are the foundation enabling us to partner sacrificially in the gospel, then verses 14 to 20 might be described as the, the bricks or the kind of means by which we partner. And say verses 21 to 23, they're like the kind of cement holding us together, binding us to one another. You see, what we normally skim over in our quiet times is actually a beautiful way to finish the letter. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Uh, sometimes we talk about someone living in a bubble, and we either mean they're unaffected by the world around them, or we can just mean they're a bit detached from reality. And Paul's content, not because he's living in a bubble, if I can kind of mix that imagery again, but because he is living in Christ. Wherever he goes, he's in Christ and strengthened in him. But rather than meaning he's detached and aloof, it is exactly the opposite. He's underlining the unity so vital to standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side together for the sake of the faith of the gospel. It is a warm, a loving unity. As people who've learned to be content in every situation, it liberates us to give to the gospel freely and generously, all in the context of loving relationships. When I was a, an undergrad uh, up in Durham, my church minister used to say, we, we do lots of things in the Christian life, not because we have to, but because we can. I think that's something of the message here. We give to support gospel work, not because we have to, but because we get to. It is an awesome privilege. It is all grace beginning to end. Jesus is undeserved. He's his unearned kindness and favor. 
Now, the Bible has uh, lots to say elsewhere about supporting gospel workers, but Paul is saying he is dependent on Christ, not his financial situation. And therefore, he, he wants the Philippians to give, not to fund him, but because it makes all the sense in the world. And here as he closes, he says, we, we don't do it in detached relational isolation, but working together as one, warm, loving relationships, and all because of Christ, by his grace, for the spread of his name, and for the glory of God. Let's pray together as we close. Some words from Psalm 34. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus is sufficient. Thank you that we can do all things through him who strengthens us. We can learn how to be content in all situations and circumstances. Please, more and more, help us to see what it is to live in Christ and be like him. Would that free us up to partner in the gospel, in our labours, in our finances? And would we do it all remembering that it is only by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Fix our eyes more on him, we pray, for your glory. Amen.